Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. Thanks, Donna. All right, we're going to start off this morning with a question. Am I on here, Jack? Start off with a question. Turn to the nearest person and answer this question. What would you do with a buck twenty-five? Go for it. Go ahead. What would you do with a buck twenty-five? Has everyone had an opportunity to say something? Everyone's had an opportunity to say what you do with the bucket of five? Okay, now I'm going to make the question considerably tougher. What would you do with a buck 25 if it was all you had to live on today? Go ahead, share. What would you do with a buck 25 if it was all you had to live on today? How many of you uh, gave a different answer? Anyone give the same answer? (laughs) Coffee? Yeah. (laughs) I understand. (laughs) And now, here's the final question that sets the stage for this morning. How much of that buck 25 would you be willing to give away? All you had to live on today, how much of that buck 25 would you be willing to give away? You can answer to your neighbor if you'd like, or you can keep this one to yourself. Today, Jesus uses the gift of a buck 25 to teach us about fearless generosity. A buck 25. Blows me away. Maybe you've heard this story before. Maybe it's brand new to you. But here it is. We're going to go through it today. Uh, In your Bibles, it's in Mark chapter 12, right at the very end. It's the last story in Mark chapter 12. On the inserts in your bulletin, it's the last section in the insert. Here's the story. Jesus sat down opposite the place where offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Now, I bet you've never thought of Jesus as people watching. Have you? Have you thought of that? Here's Jesus, people watching. He's, but it's worse than that, right? He's people watching while people give their offerings. Isn't that weird? Does that bother you? Now, just imagine this morning that Jesus was sitting right beside you this morning as the plate went past. And he kind of looked at you, and he looked in the plate, and he looked back at you. Anyone feel uncomfortable now? This is Jesus' people watching while they're giving at the temple. Now, back in those days, giving was a little more out in the open, obviously, where everyone could see. And in this area of the temple where people was, where Jesus was watching, there were 13 kind of trumpet-like receptacles that people would put their offering to it. I kind of think of them as like the toll booth <laughs> receivers, you know? You can drive by, you hardly even have to stop, man. You can just throw it. And, and they'll, they'll kind of catch and then go in. So there's kind of like trumpet-like receptacles. And there were 13 of them in this area of the temple. And so Jesus is watching them. And I don't know, people are coming along. And maybe the louder the clank, the more you gave. I'm not sure. But here it is. 
So people are coming along, they're giving their gifts, and Mark tells us that, back to the story, many rich people threw in large amounts. With lots of tinkling and clanging. Just listen to it in your ears as they put in lots of money. You know, a bit more, you know. And so you can imagine lots of tinkling going on as these 13 different trumpets, maybe tuned to different resonances, were just, there's a lot going on. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. How tiny was this widow's offering, do you think? I want to help you with this. These two little coins that she gave in were called lepta. And together, listen to this carefully, together, both of them, they were worth one sixty-fourth of a day laborer's wages. One sixty-fourth of the day laborer's wages. Let's do a little cultural translation for you. What's the minimum wage in B.C.? 10, 25. So if, if somebody worked eight hours a day and they made 10, 25 an hour, how much would that be? 82 bucks. And I'm not a math whiz. I already figured it out, right? You understand that? 82 bucks. So you take the 82 bucks and you divide it by 64 and you get what? A buck 28. But we don't have pennies anymore. So I made it a buck twenty-five. Let's assume it was a casual cash wage, no taxes, straight up buck twenty-five. There you go. This is, you know, about uh, what they're making. So a dollar twenty-five in two coins worth worth this. Now, do we have anything like that today? Do you think two coins that'd be worth a dollar twenty-five? Well. We have to go cross-border to do this. The exchange rate helped us. But Donna Stanley very kindly brought for me two 50-cent American pieces. Both from 1971. Shout out to all of you. In these, these two coins, you put together $1 American, but guess what the exchange rate was on Wednesday? <laughs> Buck 25, folks. Right here, a dollar... 25. Two coins worth a dollar 25. <laughs> I, I love that. I was pretty excited midway through the week when I discovered that, I will admit. Now, why do I say all this? Because I want you to imagine this woman. I want you to imagine her standing in front of this offering trumpet with two coins in her hands. Two. She's poor. Obviously, uh, because she's a widow and she's poor, what it means is that likely there was no living male relative that was able to care for her needs. That was the only sort of social safety net that existed for women at that time. And so here she has two coins and she tosses both of them in. Why is that significant? Well, Jesus draws it out in the next thing he says. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. Now, you, you can think of the disciples now. Uh, were you watching the same people I was watching? Because that guy over there, I could have sworn he put in 500 bucks. And that woman over there, I think it was solid gold she was tilting into that temple treasury. I, I don't think he was, maybe you were looking at their eyes. I don't, maybe you were just listening to the sound. I don't know, Jesus, but I don't think you were seeing what I was seeing because they were putting in a whole lot more. Your math doesn't make sense. Or does it? Jesus goes on to explain. He says, they, all these rich people giving the money, they all gave out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Jesus didn't just look at the amount that was being given, right? He looked at the source of the gift. He even looked at the percentage of the gift. He, he, he looked at the heart of the giver and the fearless generosity of this poor widow. The other folks, they gave lots. Sure, they did. There was lots of money going in, but, but they gave nothing that would be truly missed. You know, when they tipped in their coins, they still walked away with coins jingling in their pockets. And there's a difference, Jesus says. 
She puts in everything. All she had to live on, Jesus said. Now, here's something interesting. I thought this was right. As if this didn't get, you know, me tingling. Do you know what is considered today to be the absolute poverty line in the world for people who need money to live on daily? Do you know what it is? It's a buck twenty-five. That's right. It's a dollar twenty-five to two fifty. They consider it, which is amazing. I thought amazingly tragic that this woman in complete poverty in Jesus' day still, in some ways, is at the same line of poverty that people can be at today. Well, that's a sobering sort of side note. But I, but I, but I look at this woman and I think, look at this impoverished widow. She puts it all in. You know, why would she do that? I mean, if you were standing in front of the plate, in front of the trumpet, as it were, and you only had two coins to live on, and we already determined at the start how far this really does go, which is to say, not far. If you were standing there in front of it, and you had two coins to give, let me ask you, why would you put both of them in? Why would you do that? I wouldn't do that. I would put one in, maybe. Probably not. I wouldn't put both of them in. What would, what would possess her to put both coins in? Why would she do that? You know, why don't we till later? Why, why not think, you know, there, there'll be a better day when I can do this? Surely. I'm devastated by this. I really am. I want to wiggle out of this story. My wallet certainly wants to wiggle out of this story. I, 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 I don't like it. Because I know I'd hold back. I'd hedge. I'd write an IOU for crying out loud. I'd promise later. But I wouldn't do that. I certainly wouldn't put both of them in. Is anyone with me on that? You feel the punch of this story? It's crazy. But it gets worse because Jesus calls his disciples over. And he points her out to them. And what I'm just really upset about is that It's like this morning. Jesus is looking at all of us. And if you're a follower of Jesus today, you're a disciple of Jesus, Jesus is saying, would you come over here for a second? I've got someone I want to show you. I want to point someone out to you. I want to show you somebody. Come on over here so you can see what I'm seeing. He's pointing her out to you and I today. Now, I thought about this a lot. And I realize there's at least five ways that this widow challenges me, challenges my heart, challenges my giving, challenges my death grip on money. Five of them, at least. Maybe you can add to them as I go through. The first one is that I give from abundance. And she gave from poverty. Now, you and I may not feel super rich. I get that. And some of us, we struggle to make ends meet. I get that, too. There's some encouragement in here, actually, for you. But I realize that I give from abundance. I don't give from my poverty, not the way she did. I realized also that I dole it out pretty carefully, if you know what I'm saying. Kind of, well, careful is the word. And yet she puts it all in. She seems to be just almost disregarding the reality of her situation. I realized through this that I'm more concerned with how my generosity affects me than I am with how it praises God. I am way more concerned at the end of the month with how it affected me than did my giving, did my generosity give praise to the God who's worth every penny of it. She seems to give with this total God-centeredness, knowing that her gift is to the God that she loves. I also realize that when it comes right down to it, I give if I can. But she gave when she couldn't. She gives when she can't. And then I also realize that when it comes down to the final decision, I often give when it's convenient for me. You know? But she gave as an ultimate act of inconvenience. I mean, think about it. What was she going to do that day, exactly? Was she going to fast? Was she going to go without coffee? What was she going to do? She gave it all. 
It's totally inconvenient. These are at least five of the ways that I, as I reflected on this widow story, as I let Jesus take me and say, would you look at her for a second? That at least in these five ways, I was really challenged by this story. It really struck me that she gives everything because she trusts God completely. The only way she can give this way is if she fearlessly trusts God. She knows that without God, she'll never make it anyway. And so her giving expresses her trust. Another way we could put it is this. When you've given all you've got, then all you've got is God. You hear that? When you've given all you've got, then all you've got is God. And she knew it. Now, obviously, this challenges my financial giving, my financial generosity. There's no ducking out of that. I don't think any one of us can walk, no matter what your wage, no matter poverty or rich, none of us can walk away from the story day and say, this has nothing to do with my finances. Somehow it's all been spiritualized. We cannot do that. If we do that, we are missing what Jesus is saying. So hear me on that one. But we do know it extends far beyond that. Giving all, giving all that you have, touches every area of our life. This makes sense, right? Because last week, Jesus summarized the whole law, the whole story, everything that Jesus was about, everything that God is about, everything that the kingdom of God is about. He summarized that as what? Remember? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And giving is an expression of that love for God and that love for others. It touches everything about us. Yes, of course it touches our finances, but it touches our homes. It touches our cars. It it, it touches our our energy. It touches our talents, our our time, our friendships, our priorities and our preoccupations. Giving all that we've got is about being completely and utterly committed to God's way, not our own. To God's kingdom coming into the lives of people, not making my own way in the world. It's about giving it all up and saying, God, that's all I have. If you don't come through, I'm in trouble. If you don't come through, we're in trouble. You know, I've given all my energy to these kids so that they know His love. So that they've been raised in the name of Jesus and they know what's important. I've given everything. I've laid it all on the table and now they're all yours, God. You've got to do something. God, I've spent all my talents to to make this... uh, mission move forward, to, 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 to help with this small group Bible study, to, to mentor this kid or to walk alongside this couple. I've, I've, put in, I've put all my energy and all my talents into that and God, now you've got to show up. You know, God, I've done everything I can to witness to my friend. I, I prayed for them and I prayed for them and I keep praying for them. I, I invite them to come to church. I invite them to come to Alpha with me. I, I, I've had them over for supper. Shoot, I've even gone on vacation with them. I've done everything. I've not held anything back. And God, this is yours. You've got to do something because I've left it all on the table. Left it all in the field. Jesus, I've given it all I've got and now you have got to do something. So that we are generous with our money. We're generous with our energy. We're generous with our spiritual gifts. We're generous with our pantries and our barbecues. We're generous with our talents and our time. We're generous with our lives. Fiercely generous. And fearlessly generous. And it's at that point, I think, that we've been fearlessly generous, that we've laid it out on the table, that we realize that when we've given all we've got, then all we've got is God. It's such a challenge. I should end the sermon right there. But then, I wouldn't be doing faith to the text. So we're going to keep going, because I think once we see that this story is nestled within a larger circle, it'll help us. Mark sets this story right at the end of chapter 12, following a scathing critique towards some religious teachers. You can call them pastors if that makes you feel better. So back up the story. We're going we're to go in from the back here today. See, Jesus holds this widow up as an example right after he's given this critique to religious leaders who are living their life of faith in a way that makes Jesus want to puke. That's what he feels when he looks at them. Listen to this. Jesus is still in the temple and he says, it says, uh, Mark, uh, verse 38, as he taught, Jesus said, 
Watch out for those teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus wants his disciples, the people that are listening, to watch out for these teachers of the law, much like he calls his disciples to watch, to look, to see this widow's example. Because each one of them represent a different way of expressing faith in God. The widow displays this fearless generosity as praise to God, but these teachers of the law, these pastors or scholars or elders, or you could just say all around good Christians, they posture themselves to impress others. In that culture, looking good and faithful did have some perks. And these guys were quite happy to receive the perks of looking good and faithful. And Jesus hates that kind of hypocritical maneuvering. And what's more, these public displays of piety, the giving, the prayers, the looking important, we're actually masking a private abuse of the most poor, the most vulnerable in their society, widows themselves. Remember what we said last week. God does not care how much you say you love him if you're abusing somebody or mistreating someone. God does not care what your mouth's saying if your action doesn't live up to it. He doesn't. You can't say you love God and then mistreat other people. It's just a contradiction. And they're going to get what's coming to them, Jesus warns. And notice who specifically Jesus says that they're abusing. He draws out one group. Widows. And through this, Mark actually links these two stories. Helping us see the contrast between a life that's lived in fearless trust and a life that's lived only for personal gain and glory. And what's more, if these religious teachers had actually been loving Others, the way that they're to love themselves, had actually been loving these widows instead of extorting from them. There would have been no story about an impoverished widow giving all she had in the first place. They would have been caring for her basic needs. So hear this. Her generosity actually indicts their greed. Her generosity indicts their greed. And her poverty indicts their false spirituality. You hear that? Hear how these are contrasting these stories? Her generosity indicts their greed, and her poverty indicts their false spirituality. It, it, it shows that it's a lie. Such a contrast that Jesus makes. Not only will we be challenged by this fearless generosity of this widow, but we're forced to ask some uncomfortable questions. Questions like, where are you in these stories? This week, I had to answer one of those tests online, click or pick, and they force you to choose between two very difficult questions. You know what I'm saying? You ever done one of those? Where neither of them are good, you don't want to say yes to either of them, but you have to say yes to one. This is one of those things. So, I've got to ask you, when you read these two stories, are you more like the fearlessly generous widow who throws herself completely on the grace and provision of God, Or, when it comes right down to it, are you more like these religious teachers who live in reference to other people's opinions and your own personal comfort and benefit? If you had to choose, who would you say you're more like? I hate that question. Because I kind of know which way I probably have to say I go. When it comes right down to it, what's the difference between these two groups that Jesus contrasts? And another way of asking might be, what creates the fearless generosity that we see in the life of this widow? And, and what instills the selfish ambition that we see in this group of the religious teachers Jesus is talking about? I think it has everything to do with who's actually leading their lives. Or, as we sometimes say, it's a question of lordship. Who's the lord of their life? Who's the leader of their life? Why would I say that? Because if we back up just one more story, we get to a funny little story, it's a riddle, that caps off this whole section. It's, it's, it's an odd story, it's, it's a little strange, I admit, for quite a few months I've been wondering how in the world these stories fit together. This is how I think they fit together. 
Remember, this story caps off what comes, what follows. We've already looked at it. We've kind of gone through the back door. While Jesus was teaching the temple courts, this all takes place in the temple, he asked this question. Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, and now he quotes from Psalm 110, which Donna read at the start. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, put your enemies under your feet or make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd listened to him with delight. Jesus asks this riddle about the identity of the Messiah, the promised deliverer king of Israel. And we already know from the story that's unfolded as we've come now through Mark quite a ways that a riddle about the Messiah is really a riddle about Jesus himself. Let's break it down and get to the gist of it. Here it is. This is what he's asking. If the Messiah is a descendant of David and the term son of David had become a messianic term to point out the Messiah. So if the Messiah is a descendant of David, then why would David, that's the writer of Psalm 110, Call his own son his Lord. No king would ever call his son Lord. Ever. Descendants are always lesser than their ancestors. They were in some way under their authority or living in their shadow, even if the generations had passed. So what's the meaning of this riddle? Why does Jesus say it here in the temple? How does it fit what's going on? Very simply this. People were thinking about the Messiah, the son of David, only in terms of his lineage. The Messiah would be a descendant of David, come to restore them to the previous glory, back to the amazing days of David. And his lineage as a, as a son of David had become a kind of box that people had created around the Messiah, dictating who he would be, what he would do, uh, what would be the effects of his reign? It was this box, and they said, this is how he's going to be. This is how he's going to look. This is how he's going to act. Now, of course, Jesus is a descendant of David, but what we're seeing, of course, through Mark, and even now in this riddle, that he's, oh, so much more. He's not just another ruler in a long line of rulers. He hadn't come to return the people of God to some period of greatness. It, he didn't, Jesus didn't point back to David and this great former time. It's the other way around. David's greatness in some shadowed way, and it was pretty shadowy if you really get into the story, in some shadowed way, David's greatness pointed to the much greater kingdom of Jesus, King Jesus, the Son of God. You know, David might have defeated Israel's enemies and and brought peace for a time to one nation. didn't last that long. Within a couple generations, it had all fallen apart again. Jesus had come to bring an everlasting kingdom of goodness and life and freedom that wasn't just focused on one ethnic group, but was for all nations, all peoples, all tribes, all tongues. And quoting in Psalm 110, Jesus points forward to his ultimate victory over everyone's one true enemy, and that's death itself. What's more, the psalm goes on to promise a priesthood for this king, a priesthood that far outstrips the regular priesthood that was already in existence, a greater priesthood than the priesthood of the temple that they were currently sitting in. So a better king, a better priest, a better kingdom. It was really, and this story functions as another nail in the coffin of what was soon to be an irrelevant temple and an irrelevant priesthood. And so we come back to the theme that Mark has been drumming on all the way through that just Jesus, who has come and who's declaring that God's kingdom is here and he's healing people and he's teaching and driving out demons, this Jesus is the Son of God. He's the, the true king that has come. And we can trust him with our lives. And it's only when we understand that we can truly trust this king that we can live the kind of fierce, fearless, generous lives that he's called us to live. When we trust that Jesus truly is the king, that he's truly ruling in our lives, other people's opinions fade in importance. We don't live for the accolades of the crowd. We live for the pleasure of the king. Our eyes are only on him, loving him, 
and loving others with the strength that he gives us. Now, we're going to open this up for a few uh, moments of discussion, questions, so there's your warning. But before we get to that, let me just ask, what does it say when we live fearlessly generous? What does that say to your family? What does that say to your friends? What does fearless generosity say to your workmates or the, the kids you go to school with? What does it say? I think it says at least five things. First of all, fearless generosity says people matter. Not matter in the sense of like their opinions matter, I live for their opinions, but matter in the sense that I give for the sake of loving others the way that God has called me to love them. And when we are fearlessly generous, we're saying people matter more than my comfort, more than my benefit, more than my convenience. People matter more. They matter more to God, therefore they matter more to me. They matter more to Jesus, therefore they matter more to us as a church. That when we live fearlessly generous, we are saying people matter more than our stuff, matter more than our experiences, matter more than our pleasure. People matter. And it's only, I think, when we're living fearlessly generous that people really begin to believe us when we say, you know what? Because you matter so much to God, you matter to me. That's what fearless generosity says. It also says, fearless generosity says that we trust God. I mean, that's, that can only be what it's saying. When this woman puts, where are the two coins? Puts both coins in the plate. What is she saying when she does this? She's saying, I've got nothing else, but I've got you. I've got nothing else to give. I've got nothing else. I've got nothing else to fall back on, but I do have you. When we live fearlessly generous, we're saying, we trust God. He has got our backs. We're not going to find out that after we've given everything, God is going to say, sorry, man, well, that was a dumb idea. I'm not going to cover that. Or, or God saying, yeah, I see you kind of laid it out all, you really gave everything to those kids, but, uh, yeah, nice, you know, sorry for you, you're burned out. God is going to say, man, I am with you. I will never leave or forsake you. That is his promise to us. And so when we live fearlessly generous, we can do that because we're saying we have a God who will not fail us. We have a God we can trust. And so we live and we give in this fearlessly generous way, not only our money, with our time and our talents and our energy, to say, we can give it all because we have a God who's trustworthy. Fearless generosity says, we trust God. Fearless generosity also says that we think differently. I don't think there's any way other around that. When you think, put yourself in the shoes or sandals or bare feet of this widow, stand in front of these trumpet receptacle deals, and you ask yourself, Why would she do that? You have to conclude that she's thinking differently about her money than everyone else around her. You have to conclude that she's got a different framework for how she's thinking about the giving of her life to Jesus, to to God. And I think when we live fearlessly generous, that's exactly what's happening. There'll be people around us that go, really? You're helping them again? Or, really? You, you give so much time and energy to that. Does it, you know, you're, that when we are fearlessly generous, we're saying, you know what? We think differently than others do. Not in a bragging, weird, prideful way. But we just have a different framework for how we think about our lives. We have a different framework for how we think about our stuff. We have a different framework for how we think about retirement. We think differently. Why? Because we're thinking according to the kingdom of God. Not the false little kingdoms that everyone around us is promising and telling us to build for. We think differently. So people matter. We trust God. We think differently. I think fearless generosity also says that God's opinion matters the most, counts the the most. That when we're living this kind of life that's fearlessly generous, we're saying, I'm not doing this to impress people. Because frankly, when you're this way, no one's very impressed. They're mostly upset with you because they feel like you're being too generous and that makes them look stingy. And I don't just mean money, I mean time and energy and life priorities. So people get, even Christians can get rather weird about that one. They can. So we can feel this pull to live in a way that 
kind of makes us look right in other people's eyes. But I think when we're fearlessly generous, we're saying, you know what? At the end of the day, it's God's opinion that I really care about, not yours. Don't do that in a rude way, but that's what it means. It's God's opinion that counts most. It's him we're living for. It's him that is in charge of my life and my stuff and my energy and my priorities. It's, it's his opinion that matters at the end of the day and the end of my life. It's whether or not he looks in my eyes and says, well done, good and faithful servant, or who the heck are you? It's his opinion that counts the most. And then the last thing, which we've already stated, I think, is that fearless generosity says, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord in my life. Jesus is Lord in my family. Jesus is Lord in this church. Jesus is Lord in the way that I live, in the way that I work, in the way that I play. And, 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 and when we're, we're, we're fearlessly generous, we're saying, you know what? It's not my stuff that's Lord of my life. It's not my, my savings that's the Lord of my life. It's not, it's not my, my uh, you know, special hobbies that I have that are Lord of my life. Those can all be good. Don't get me wrong. But the Lord of my life is Jesus. He's the one directing my life, my affairs. And so if you've got a problem with, you know, the generosity, if you've got a problem with the way I'm living, you've got to take it up with him. He's the boss, not me. Fearless generosity says, Jesus is Lord. Well, do I dare ask for questions or discussion today? Yeah, let's go for it. We've got a little time. What kind of questions, what kind of wrestlings is this with you? Um, you know, uh, how does this story challenge you? Particularly the story of the of the widow. How are you challenged? Um, Roger's got the mic already. Roger's got a microphone. So if you could stand, Roger, and look out to God. Just think about this. How does this question challenge you? How does it encourage you? Um, what have I missed? Try not to be too upset with me, Laura. No, no. <laughs> Those two things weren't meant to go together like that. Um, Tom, I have often marveled at the way the Lord works and how uh, just this week, (laughs) uh, Jack and I were dealing with this just very topic, (laughs) going, okay, uh, which way are we supposed to be going here, Lord? I feel kind of good this way or um, kind of somebody questioned what we have been doing with our money and in uh specifically in our giving and our generosity and such and how their opinion was different than our opinion in coming from a uh what the heck are you doing you're ruining your financial future by giving all that money or whatever you're giving and going you know what that's his opinion because he he works like you said out of a different parameters of what uh we feel Money in. So I, uh, yeah, thanks. You're welcome. Anyone else? Who else would like to throw in their two lepta? I mean, their two cents worth. <laughs> How are you challenged by this story? Oh, Dean. Do you feel the cultural context nowadays changes? the story at all for us because back then it was so harsh like she literally could starve to death right where we, we live in such a cushy society like there's there's so many social programs and and yeah. things like that that you know that really doesn't exist so should we be looking elsewhere to like harsher situations to contribute or, or? oh good good question so you spe- are you specifically asking about where to give to you do you have an answer to that yourself as you, as you uh, think that one through? What, what are your thoughts on it? Give them the mic back. This is my new strategy. You answer your own questions. No. No, I'm just teasing. I'm teasing. Any thoughts on that, though? I don't know. Yeah, I guess personally, and I just wonder if I'm being hard-hearted about it, because like when I look to, to give like in Canada, I just think, well, you know, why don't you go get a job? There's so much opportunity. There's so many social programs. There's so much. Yeah. Um, so I guess, yeah, that I think that, well, I should look to people that, that just don't have that option, kind of like this widow, or am I just being hard-hearted to my fellow countrymen? <laughs> yeah, right. Thanks, Dean. I, I think that, well, let me give a short answer to that. First of all, the question at the end of the day is, is my heart, it, it, am I living generously? Like, am I, 
we have to use wisdom in how we give. We've talked about that before. But I think the question is, does it come out of a heart of generosity that God is, is leading me to love others as I, you know, as I love myself? And there are amazing, there's, a, there's amazing ways to contribute. I mean, think of through, there's just so many organizations, I hesitate to mention them, but, you know, obviously World Vision, Compassion, there's other amazing MCC, other amazing organizations that we can do exactly what you said, to contribute and to say, you know what, I could live a cush life or I could shave quite a bit more off and actually give to those who are really living at that base poverty line and make a real difference in their, in their lives. And I think each one of us, we have to kind of figure out what that looks like for us. I think the question is always for me, is Jesus making my heart more generous or am I doing this because I'm stingy or I'm doing this because I'm upset? I think that's an important question to ask as the Spirit works in our hearts, that I'm not giving because I'm upset, but I'm giving out of love for God and love for others. And, and that's, that's a really important question. We give in a variety of ways. We give to the church because people matter. And we want people to find out that Jesus loves them. And we believe that at the Erickson Covenant Church, we're committed to helping people find and follow Jesus. People are. And our giving connects directly to that. We also give to other organizations to meet a variety of needs, to help women and children be, be saved out of the sexual slavery, which is rampant in the world. We, we give to help people get clean water. We have no clean water because people matter, right? I think at the heart is, is am I doing this out of reference to God and his desire for, for me and for the world so that I can live fearlessly generous because of my trust in him and my love for him? Uh, and we need to each one of us do that in our own way. What's beautiful about that is at the body of Christ, giving in a whole bunch of different ways according to the passion and the gifts and the capacities we have, we can do amazing things. Meet so many needs. Becky. I have two, two things. One kind of ties off the last question. It was, and sometimes I think that regardless of the social systems that we have in our, in our country and in our province, and regardless of whether... We think people are using their money right or wrong. If God is directing you and showing you to be generous to them, yeah. then that could be the difference that leads them to Christ or not. So it could be that, you know, Mimi spent all her money, and but I still feel led to, to give her something for whatever reason. If you're feeling led and you're feeling, and even if it's costly to you, it's worth doing, right? There's a lot of systems. There's a lot of complicating factors in our society, too. And so just being obedient that way. And the other thing that this story reminds me of is, um, I know for me sometimes I'm like, oh, so worried about that number that's thrown high in the sky, you know, the 10% giving, and that sometimes I wouldn't give because I couldn't give what I thought I had to give. Mm. And so this just always reminds me that it's not about comparing. It's not about giving a certain number. It's about giving what you can and challenging yourself to give even beyond. And if your beyond is... A hundred bucks a month in our gener- society, that and that's pushing for you. Then, then that's what's good. And if yours is a thousand, then, then that's good too. And it's not about comparing to one another. So true. Thanks, Becky. Eileen. I think it's kind of scary in our society today, though. Uh, we think we're doing good, and we think we're giving to the right place for the right reasons, and we find out later that. Maybe they get um, 50 cents on the dollar. And it's so hard to tell. I know we should, but even God, he's laying it on your heart. That's a good thing. Give to them. And you find out you're being stung. So I think that deters people from, from giving sometimes. That's right, Elaine. We have to use a lot of wisdom. There's lots of organizations out there I wouldn't touch with my money. But there's great ones out there that are worth are supporting, right? So, yeah, we have to do our homework, talk to others, find out some good organizations. My advice is find out a couple that really suit your passions. Please give to the church if you attend here. <laughs> oh, I'm not kidding. Um, if you're attending here, this better be your passion. Uh, and if it's not, please find a church that you're passionate about. Um, and, but give to the church, find a couple organizations, sink your teeth into it, and then really give generously and support what's going on there. And, you know, organizations you can trust. Absolutely. Who else had the microphone now? Oh, yeah, I got it right here. Sorry. Go ahead, Jordan. Um, Yeah, I think ultimately it comes down to a heart issue. Like Dean was talking about having a hard heart. 
Um, you can go through all the motions of giving your time, your money, or whatever else, but then I think it gets very quick into being calloused mm-hmm. of assuming that people are taking you for granted or whatever else. Yeah. So I think it's easy just to look at that and be like, do I want to give this? Or even if you say, okay, I need to take time off, whatever reason, but when you give, then I think you should want to give and do that because that's your gift and you should actually be passionate about that. But I think if you're kind of resentful, then that's the whole purpose. So it should be a gift to that. So, Thanks, Jordan. And I think that's why we find ourselves often with mixed motives and having to say, okay, I want to give this to you, Jesus, for you. And kind of real, it's yours anyway. And, and really, I want to be giving something that's pleasing to you and is, is good for what you want to do. Um, and it's, it's not about me. And often that's the struggle we have, right? So just really, just really quick and short. Um, for me, any time that I'm thinking about giving and if I feel challenged, I just go back to actually Tommy just said it, was that it's not mine anyways. God's given it to me. Um, I'm just a steward of it. So there's times that I feel led, led to give. You know what? What that person does with that money after it leaves my hand is no longer my concern. It's God. It's God's money. It's not my money anyway. So that's kind of where I kind of go a lot of times with it. So. We'll wrap it up here, but is there someone who really is dying to say something? Now, we've talked almost exclusively at this point about money, and I appreciate that we can't duck that one. I, I really don't think we can duck it. But I don't want us to forget that the kind of fearless generosity that God is calling us to is more than just our money. It is our lives. Loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, of course, includes your finances, but it includes everything about you. It includes your spiritual gifts. It includes your passion, your energies, your, what makes you uniquely you. It includes your family and your just the beautiful person that you are. And so this putting it all on the table and giving it all, it's going to look differently for us. Fearless generosity is going to look different for you than it is for me. And what's, what's amazing is you take all this in stride, you realize that we can encourage one another in the ways that we're taking steps of fearless generosity, or maybe at first fearful generosity, but we're stepping forward in that. We can encourage one another without feeling like I've got to match you, <laughs> or I've got to. Now there may be a few of you. <laughs> it wouldn't be bad, you know. It wouldn't be bad to say, "Hey, buddy, I'm going to up my giving this year, 10 percent." I know enough. We know each other enough to let's do it together, you know. Let's let's turn that regular gift of 200 bucks a month into 220 or something like that. You can do that. You know the relationships. Go ahead, challenge one another. I dare you. Um, <laughs> but, but we can do that in ways that we can applaud one another. We say, that's amazing. Way to go. You know, through your giving, you're showing the love of Jesus. Or through your giving, you're showing your trust in God. We can encourage one another without this feeling like, I've got to be them. Because it's going to look different. How you are generous how you follow the call of God in your life, how you get in on our mission as a church to help people find and follow Jesus is going to look different for each one of us according to the gifts and the time and the energy that we have. So we can applaud one another without feeling weird about it or measuring ourselves against others. I was really struck that this fearless generosity is one of the ways the world, one of the ways that the men and the women that you work with the people you interact with in your social life, your own children, your own families, your own spouses, maybe someone you go to school with, that it's through this kind of fearless generosity that people will begin to see Jesus in your life. They begin to see that because you're thinking differently, they might be slightly repellent to them, but also intriguing. Because people really do matter to you more than your stuff. There's something about this fearless generosity that is going to be the message of Jesus to people in our lives. And it struck me that unless they're able to see it in our lives, unless they're able to see this kind of fearless generosity that points others to Jesus, unless they're going to see it in your life that that God really cares for them, that there's an amazing kingdom that Jesus has brought and is bringing life and goodness and freedom to people's life. Unless they see it in your life, where else are they going to see it? Where else are they going to glimpse the heart of God for them? 
who was fearlessly generous by giving away everything Jesus did to come to become one of us, to rescue us. There's no one more fearlessly generous than him. And our fearless generosity points people to Jesus, the only one who's going to make a change, the only one who's going to make a difference in their lives. If they don't see it in you, and they don't see it in me, if they don't see it in us, where are they going to see it? Where are they going to see it? I hope they see it in me. I hope they see it through you. I hope they see it through us. Because when we've given all we've got, when you've given all you've got, when I've given all we've got, all I've got, when we as a church have said we've left it all in the field, we've done everything possible, we're doing everything we can to help people find and follow Jesus, we will hold nothing back. When we've done that, we've given it all to God, we're going to discover, and dare I say the people around us are going to discover, after we've given it all to God, all we needed was God. And he's right there waiting to bring life and freedom to each one of us. Let's pray. Jesus, I am super challenged by this story. And I ask Jesus that we as a church would grab a hold of your fearlessness. You who gave everything away to become one of us, to bring life and freedom, to defeat death, to defeat the devil, and to bring new creation to the world. You were so fearless. And Jesus, I ask by your Spirit that you would fill us with a fearlessness, a trust in you that breaks out of our lives in this extravagant generosity generous with our time, generous with our finances, generous with our hearts and our lives. And that the people around us, far away from you or near, that they would discover through our lives that this fearless generosity doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from you. Your heart for them shining through our lives. And so Jesus, may that be true in us. We pray this in your name. Amen.